Thanks, guys. Tim, alcoholic. Hi, Tim. Okay, we continue our series, uh, The Pioneers. We're on page 246. The Man Who Mastered Fear. He spent 18 years in running away and then found he didn't have to run. So he started AA in Detroit. So here we're talking about uh, Archie Trowbridge. Uh, for those of you very into detail, it's uh, uh, Archie Lindsay Trowbridge. And uh, his date of sobriety is September of 38. Uh, he has been in um, not only the manuscript in first edition, but second, third, and fourth edition. The, um, the story was rewritten and retitled for second edition on. Uh, in the uh, first edition, uh, it was called The Fearful One. Uh, not only was it retitled, it was completely rewritten. So it has a, a, a fairly different flavor to it. It was sort of a standard drunkalog, and it, it, it got a little bit more um, um, polished. For 18 years, from the time I was 21, fear governed my life. By the time I was 30, I had found that alcohol dissolved fear for a little while. In the end, I had two problems instead of one, fear and alcohol. I came from a good family. I believe the sociologists would call it upper middle class. By the time I was 21, I had had six years of life in foreign countries, spoke three languages fluently, and had attended college for two years. A low ebb in the family fortunes necessitated my going to work when I was 20. I entered the business world with every confidence that success lay ahead of me. I had been brought up to believe this, and I had shown during my teens considerable enterprise and imagination about earning money. To the best of my recollection, I was completely free from any abnormal fears. Vacations from school and from work spelled travel to me, and I traveled with gusto. During my first year out of college, I had endless dates and went to countless dances, balls, and dinner parties. So specifically, uh, Archie, uh, uh, and we saw up in the, in the lead here that he uh, is the founder of AA Detroit. He's from Gross Point, Michigan which is the um, uh, um, upmarket neighborhood he's referring to there. Suddenly, all this changed. I underwent a shattering nervous breakdown. Three months in bed, three more months of being up and around the house for brief periods and in bed the rest of the time. Visits from friends that lasted over 15 minutes exhausted me. A complete checkup at one of the best hospitals revealed nothing. I heard for the first time an expression that I was to grow to loathe. There is nothing organically wrong. Psychiatry might have helped, but psychiatrists had not penetrated Middle West. Spring came. I went out for my first walk. Half a block from the house, I tried to turn the corner. Fear froze me in on my tracks. But the instant I turned back toward home, this paralyzing fear left me. This was the beginning of an unending series of such experiences. I told our family doctor, an understanding man who gave hours of his time trying to help me about this experience. He told me that it was imperative that I walk around the entire block, cost me what it might in mental agony. I carried out his instructions. When I reached a point directly back of our house, 
where I could have cut through a friend's garden, I was almost overpowered by the desire to get home. But I made the whole journey. Probably only a few readers of this story will be able, from personal experiences of their own, to understand the exhilaration and sense of accomplishment I felt after finishing this seemingly simple assignment. The details of the long road back to something resembling normal living, the first short streetcar ride, the purchase of a used bike, which enabled me to widen the narrow horizon of my life, the first trip downtown, I will not dwell on. I got an easy part-time job selling printing for a small neighborhood printer. This widened the scope of my activities. A year later, I was able to buy a Model T Roadster and take a better job with a downtown printer. From this job and the next one with yet another printer, I was courteously dismissed. I simply did not have the pep to do hard, cold turkey selling. I switched to real estate brokerage and property management work. Almost simultaneously, I discovered that cocktails in the late afternoon and highballs in the evening relieve the many tensions of the day. This happy combination of pleasant work and alcohol lasted for five years. Of course, the latter ultimately killed the former. But of this, more anon. So anon means I'll tell you more shortly. All this changed when I was 30 years old. My parents died, both in the same year, leaving me a sheltered and somewhat immature man on my own. I moved into a bachelor hall. All, these men all drank on Saturday nights and enjoyed themselves. My pattern of drinking became very different from theirs. I had had, uh, excuse me, I had bad nervous headaches, particularly at the base of my neck. Liquor relieved these. At last, I discovered alcohol as a cure-all. I joined their Saturday night parties and enjoyed myself too. But I also stayed up weeknights after they had retired and drank myself into bed. My thinking about drinking had undergone a great change. Alcohol had become a crutch on the one hand and a means of retreat from life on the other. The ensuing nine years were the depression years, both nationally and personally. With the bravery born of desperation and abetted by alcohol, I married a young and lovely girl. Our marriage lasted four years. At least three of those four years must have been a living hell for my wife because she had to watch the man she loved disintegrate morally, mentally, and financially. The birth of a baby boy did nothing towards staying the downward spiral. When she finally took the baby and left, I locked myself in the house and stayed drunk for a month. The next two years were simply a long, drawn-out process of less and less work and more and more whiskey. I ended up homeless, jobless, penniless, and rudderless as the problem guest of a close friend whose family was out of town haunting me through each day's stupor and there were 18 or 19 such days in this man's home was the thought where do i go when his family comes home when the day of their return was almost upon me and suicide was the only answer i had been able to think of i went into ralph's room one evening and told him the truth he was a man of considerable means and he might have done what many men would have done in such a case 
He might have handed me $50 and said that I ought to pull myself together and make a new start. I have thanked God many times in the last 16 years that that, that that, that was just what he did not do. So that's an interesting uh, thing there. So that's part of the rewrite there because it's making it sound like he's writing this 16 years sober, right? He's not. He's, he, he originally wrote this uh, uh, before the book was published in 1939. So that's an added in uh, statement there. Instead, he got dressed, took me out, bought me three or four double shots and put me to bed. The next day, he turned me over to a couple who... Although neither was an alcoholic, knew Dr. Bob and were willing to drive me to Akron where they would turn me over to his care. The only stipulation they made was this. I had to make the decision myself. So this implies that it was probably an Oxford group couple from Detroit that were uh, 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 in knowledge of Dr. Bob's successes um, from in the last two years. So Dr. Bob gets sober in 35. This is, uh, this is 38. And it, and it does also imply that they, they specifically spoke to Dr. Bob because that's Dr. Bob's statement that it has to be his decision. Don't push him into it. He has to want to do it. That would be Dr. Bob. What decision? The choice was limited to go north into the empty pine country and shoot myself or to go south in the faint hope that a bunch of strangers might help me with my drinking problem. Well, suicide was a last straw matter and I had not drawn the last straw yet. So I was driven to Akron the very next day by these good Samaritans and turned over to Dr. Bob and the then tiny Akron group. Here, while I was in a hospital bed, Men with clear eyes, happy faces, and a look of assurance and purposefulness about them came to see me and told me their stories. Some of these were hard to believe, but it did not require a giant brain to perceive that they had something I could use. How could I get it? It was simple, they said, and went on to explain to me in their own language the program of recovery and daily living that we know today as the 12 steps of AA. So again, the book isn't written when he's first approached by these guys. So it's not even 12 steps at that time. We see next week, and he sold himself short, what the program actually looked like. It was actually a six-step program, but you have to come next week to hear that. (laughs) Dr. Bob knelt, excuse me, (laughs) probably did kneel. Dr. Bob (laughs) dwelt at length on how prayer had given him release time and time again from the nearly overpowering compulsion to take a drink. Remember, what does Dr. Bob say in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers? For the first, I might say it in, in his story also, first two and a half years obsessed with booze still. It didn't leave him. The compulsion didn't leave him. First two and a half years. It was, it was he who convinced me because his own conviction was so real that a power, capital P, greater than myself could help me in the crisis of life and that the means of communicating with this power was simple prayer. Here was a tall, rugged, highly educated Yankee talking in a matter-of-fact, matter-of-course way about God and prayer. If he and these other fellows could do it, so could I. 
When I got out of the hospital, I was invited to stay with Dr. Bob and his dear wife, Anne. I was suddenly and uncontrollably seized with the old paralyzing panic. The hospital had seemed so safe. Now I was in a strange house, in a strange city, and the fear gripped me. I shut myself in my room, which began to go around in circles. Panic, confusion, and chaos were supreme. Out of this maelstrom, just two coherent thoughts came to the surface. One, a drink would mean homelessness and death. Two, I could no longer relieve the pressure of fear by starting home, as was once my habitual solution to this problem, because I no longer had a home. Finally, and I shall never know how much later it was, one clear thought came to me. Try prayer. You can't lose. And maybe God will help you. Just maybe, mind you. Having no one else to turn to, I was willing to give him a chance, although with considerable doubt. I got down on my knees for the first time in 30 years. The prayer I said was simple. It went something like this. God, for 18 years, I have been unable to handle this problem. Please let me turn it over to you. Immediately, I got a great feeling of peace. A great feeling of peace descended upon me, intermingled with a feeling of being suffused with a quiet strength. I lay down on the bed and slept like a child. An hour later, I awoke to a new world, italicized. Nothing had changed, and yet everything had changed. Changed. The scales had dropped from my eyes, and I could see life in its proper perspective. I had tried to be the center of my own little world, whereas God was the center of a vast universe of which I had perhaps an essential but a very tiny part. So this seems like a spiritual experience to me. So he has this experience, he, uh, and, and when he wakes up, after he slept for an hour, when he wakes up, he's had a psychic change. He has a spiritual experience, which leads to the psychic change. A psychic change is, is a completely different way of looking at the world. He's still in the same circumstances he was the, the, an hour later. So it's a perspective change. It is well over 16 years since I came back to life. I have never had a drink since. This alone is a miracle. It is, however, only the first of a series of miracles that have followed one another as the result of my trying to apply my daily life, the principles embodied in our 12 steps. I would like to sketch for you the highlights of these 16 years of a slow but steady and satisfying upward climb. Poor health and a complete lack of money necessitated my remaining with Dr. Bob and Ann for very close to a year. On his first time there, it was, it was actually 10 months, but it will work out to a year. Watch this. It would be impossible for me to pass over this year without mentioning my love for and my indebtedness to these. Indebtedness to these two wonderful people who are now no longer with us. So remember... Ann dies in 49, Dr. Bob dies in 1950. So this rewrite is happening in 1954 before the second edition is published in 1955. Just a little, little perspective there. They made me feel as if I were a part of their family, and so did their children. The example that they and Bill W., 
whose visits to Akron were fairly frequent, set for me of service to their fellow men, imbued me with a great desire to emulate them. Sometimes during that year, I rebelled inwardly at what seemed like lost time and at having to be a burden to these good people whose means were limited. Long before I had any real opportunity to give, this is important, I had to learn the equally important lesson of receiving graciously, humility. During my first few months in Akron, I was quite sure that I never wanted to see my hometown again. Too many economic and social problems would beset me there. I would make a fresh start somewhere else. After six months of sobriety, I saw the picture in a different light. Detroit was the place I had to return to, not only because I must face the mess I had made there, step nine, but because it was there, I could be of the most service to AA. In the spring of 1939, Bill stopped off in Akron on his way to Detroit on business. I jumped at the suggestion that I accompany him. We spent two days there together before he returned to New York. Friends invited me to stay on for as long as I cared to. I remained with them for three weeks, using part of the time and making many amends, which I had had no earlier opportunity of making. The rest of my time was devoted to AA spade work. I wanted ripe prospects, and I didn't feel that I would get very far chasing individual drunks in and out of bars. So I spent much of my time calling on the people who I felt would logically come in contact with alcoholic cases. Doctors, ministers, lawyers, and the personnel men in industry. I also talked AA to every friend who would listen. At lunch, at dinner, on street corners. A doctor tipped me off to my first prospect. I landed him and shipped him by train to Akron with a pint of whiskey in his pocket to keep him from wanting to get off the train in Toledo. Nothing has ever to this day equaled the thrill of that first case. Those three weeks left me completely exhausted and I had to return to Akron for three more months of rest. So he stayed with Dr. Bob and, and Ann Smith then. So that's how we get a year. While there, two or three more cash companies customers, as Dr. Bob used to call them, probably because they had so little cash, were shipped in to us from Detroit. When I finally returned to Detroit to find work and to learn to stand on my own feet, the ball was already rolling, however slowly. But it took six more months of work and disappointments before a group of three men got together in my rooming house bedroom for their first AA meeting. He was actually assisted by a non-alcoholic female, uh, Sarah Klein, and uh, she did a lot of speaking uh, in the AA circuit as a non-alcoholic, so you could actually listen to her like on XA speakers, Sarah Klein. She assisted uh, uh, Archie with getting AA set up in Detroit. It sounds simple, but there were obstacles and doubts to overcome. I well remember a session I had with myself soon after I returned. It ran something like this. If I go around shouting from rooftops about my alcoholism, it might very possibly prevent me from getting a good job. But, italicized, supposing that just one man died because I had, for selfish reasons, kept my mouth shut. No, I was supposed to be doing God's will, not mine. 
His road lay clear before me, and I'd better quit rationalizing, my, rationalizing myself into any detours. I could not expect to keep what I had gained unless I gave it away. The depression was still on and jobs were scarce. My health was still uncertain. So I created a job for myself selling women's hosiery and men's made-to-order shirts. This gave me freedom to do AA work and to rest for periods of two or three days when I became too exhausted to carry on. There was more than one occasion when I got up in the morning with just enough money for coffee and toast and the bus fare to carry to my first appointment. No sale, no lunch. During that first year, however, I managed to make both ends meet and to avoid ever going back to my old habit pattern of borrowing money when I could not earn it. Here by itself was a great step forward. During the first three months, I carried on all these activities without a car, depending entirely on buses and streetcars. I, who always have, who had to have a car at my immediate command, I, who never made a speech in my life and who would have been frightened sick at the prospect, stood up in front of, a, of rotary groups in different parts of the city and talked about Alcoholics Anonymous. I, carried away with the desire to serve AA, gave what was probably one of the first radio broadcasts about AA, living through a case of mic fright and feeling like a million dollars when it was all over. I lived through a week of the fidgets because I had, agreed to, I had agreed to address a group of alcoholic inmates in one of our state mental hospitals. There it was, the same reward, exhilaration at a mission accomplished. Do I have to tell you who gained the most out of all of this? Within a year of my return to Detroit, AA was a definitely established little group of about a dozen members. And I, too, was established in a mod modest but steady job handling an independent dry cleaning route of my own. I was my own boss. It took five years of AA living and a substantial improvement in my health before I could take a full-time office job where someone else was the boss. This office job brought me face-to-face -face with a problem that I had sidestepped all my adult life, lack of training. This time, I did something about it. I enrolled in a co correspondence school that taught nothing but accounting. With this specialized training and a liberal business education in the School of Hard Knocks, I was able to set up shop some two years later as an independent accountant. Seven years of work in this field brought me an opportunity to affiliate myself actively with one of my clients, a fellow AA. We complement each other beautifully. He is a born salesman, and my taste is for finance and management. At long last, I am doing the kind of work I have always wanted to do, but never had the patience and emotional stability to train myself for. The AA program showed me that the way to come down to earth, start from the bottom and work up. This represents another great change for me. In the long ago past, I used to start at the top as president or treasurer and end up with the sheriff breathing down my neck. So much for my business life. Obviously, I have overcome fear to a sufficient degree to think in terms of success in business. With God's help, I am able for one day at a time to carry business responsibilities that 
Not many years ago, I would not have dreamed of assuming. But what about my social life? What about those fears that once paralyzed me to the point of my becoming a semi-hermit? What about my fear of travel? It would be wonderful were I able to tell you that my confidence in God and my application of the 12 steps to my daily living have utterly banished fear. But this would not be the truth. The most accurate answer I can give you is this. Fear has never again ruled my life since that day in September 1938 when I found that a power greater than myself could not only restore me to sanity, but could keep me both sober and sane. Never in 16 years have I dodged anything because I was afraid of it. I have faced life instead of running away from it. Some of the things that used to stop me in my tracks from fear still makes me nervous in the anticipation of their doing. But once I kick myself into doing them, Nervousness disappears and I enjoy myself. In recent years, I have had the happy combination of time and money to travel occasionally. I am apt to get into quite an uproar for a day or two before starting, but I do start, and once started, I have a swell time. Have I ever wanted to drink during these years? Only once did I suffer from a nearly overpowering compulsion to take a drink. Oddly enough, the circumstances and surroundings were pleasant. I was at a beautifully set dinner table. I was in a perfectly happy frame of mind. I had been in AA a year, and the last thing on my mind was a drink. There was a glass of sherry at my place. I was seized with an almost uncontrollable desire to reach out for it. I shut my eyes and asked for help. In 15 seconds or less, the feeling passed. There have also been numerous times when I have thought about taking a drink. Such thinking usually began with thoughts of the pleasant drinking of my youth. I learned early in my AA life that I could not afford to fondle such thoughts as you might fondle a pet, because this particular pet could grow into a monster. Instead, I quickly substitute one or another vivid scene from the nightmare of my later drinking. So that even could be like a suggestion, like we do think the drink, think the drink through. That could kind of be the same idea as that you, you'd want to think about all the fun that you were having with it. And then by the time you're, you, you know, you've been arrested and you're in handcuffs. 20 odd, well, me, I don't know about you, but 20 odd years ago, I made a mess out of my one and only marriage. It was therefore not extraordinary that I should shy away from any serious thought of marriage for a great many years after joining AA. Here was something requiring a greater willingness to assume responsibility and a larger degree of cooperation and give and take than even business requires of one. However, I must have felt deep down inside myself that living the selfish life of a bachelor was only half living. By living alone, you can pretty much eliminate grief from your life, but you also eliminate joy. At any rate, the last great step toward a well-rounded life still lay ahead of me. So six months ago, so this would be like 1954, six months ago, I acquired a ready-made family consisting of one charming wife, four grown children to whom I'm devoted, and three grandchildren. Being an alcoholic, I couldn't dream of doing anything by halves. My wife, a sister member in AA, had been a wid widow nine years 
and I had been single 18 years. The adjustments in such a case are difficult and take time, but we both feel that we that they are certainly worth it. We are both deepening up. Excuse me. We are both depending upon God and our use of the Alcoholics Anonymous program to help us make a success of this joint undertaking. So he dies in 57. He's writing this in 54 with six months. He had a very short marriage. It, it is, he had a very short life after marriage. It is undoubtedly, like the marriage didn't cause it. I'm just, no, it, no, no, it is undoubtedly too soon for me to say how much of a success I shall be as a husband in time to come. I do feel, though, that the fact that I have fi- that I finally grew up to a point where I could even tackle such a job is the apex of the story of a man who spent 18 years running away from life. And we'll end it right there.